Hello and welcome to the Getting Grid Podcast. I am Brad Pohl, your host, and we are here telling the stories again of sinners and saints. Today, talking about our nation back in the 20th century, putting some rocks into your pocket that we hope someday you'll pull them out and they will be precious stones. Not too long ago, I was approached by a young man who was barely 19 years of age, born in the year 2000. And he told me that my generation and the ones before me had screwed things up. His generation was here to fix it. Well, when the young man couldn't tell me when was the year that World War I or the year that World War II actually began, and most to my surprise, he couldn't name not a single John Wayne movie. And on top of all that, I mean, to put icing on the cake, he had never seen Tombstone with Kirk Russell and Val Kilmer. I mean, who can take a young sprout like that? Very serious. I mean, come on, Buttercup. However, I have to say that this caused me to think just a little bit about the generation that I came from and what had I learned from them. And to question that just a little bit enough to take a look back at someone from that generation who was my grandfather. His name was Walter. I read so many articles today that talk about that we are living in unprecedented times. So I wanted to take a look back at my grandfather. My grandfather was born in Sweden in 1898 and immigrated to the U.S. in 1914 with just a note sewn in his pocket of a relative that was here in the U.S. But he came all by himself back in 1914 at the age of 16 years old. And he brought with him a natural trade of carpentry. My grandfather died in 1969. So I'm going to give you a short synopsis here of this was the world that he lived in. So he reaches the U.S. in uh, 1914. Uh, world War I began in 1914, and it ended in 1918. There was about 325,000 people who died during that time. When he was 20, he got a job cutting timber in the state of Washington. As the first pandemic of his lifetime broke out, the Spanish flu, which lasted from 1918 to 1920, killed somewhere between 50 and 100 million people worldwide. A half a billion were infected. 25 million people died in the first six months. He had from the age of 22 to 31 to make his fortune. Those were the roaring 20s, 1920 to 1929, where the American economy more than doubled. But then the Great Depression hit, the greatest economic downturn in world history. The country's industrial production dropped to less than half. Bread lines, soup kitchens were commonplace. In 1930, droughts hit the southern plains and brought high winds and dust from Texas and Nebraska, killing people, livestock, and crops. It was called the Dust Bowl, and it inspired a mass migration of people from farmland to cities in search of work. By 1933, thousands of banks had collapsed. 20% of the U.S. population was unemployed. By the time he hit 31 years of age, talking about my grandfather, he, like, he, like everyone else, lost or had great difficulty keeping anything that he had saved or earned. He ended up moving like a lot of people did, and he moved to Southern California. And fortunate, through a family member, landed a job as a carpenter, of all things, with MGM Studios, on movie sets. 
1935 classic Mutiny on the Bounty. Uh, he had had a great deal to do with uh, putting together that the ship that was used on the main set. And it always remained his favorite movie. Now, overshadowing this entire time, okay, uh, uh, of when he got here in 1916, uh, or excuse me, 1914, was the polio epidemic. So it, it was an epidemic that appeared about every summer. Uh, the worst was, of course, in the 40s and 50s. By the 1950s, polio had become one of the most serious communicable diseases among children in the United States. In 1952 alone, nearly 60,000 children were infected with the virus. Thousands were paralyzed and more than 3,000 kids died. Few diseases frightened parents more than this. At the age of 41, World War II broke out. He was furloughed at MGM and he worked for the civil service as a community watch person. Don't ask me to explain everything that a community watch person was, but that's what he did, barely surviving to get by and, of course, you know, had the home garden and the whole thing. World War II broke out in 39 and uh, from 39 to, of course, 45, 1.1 million people died in that war in the United States. It began and would last through the rest of his life. It was something called the Cold War that lasted from 1947 to 1991. At the age of 52, the Korean War broke out, and that was 1950 to 1953. 133,000 men died, and women too, in the uh, I mean, combined men and women in the, in the war. 133,000 deaths in the U.S. When he was 59, the second pandemic of his lifetime broke out. It was called the Asian flu. It lasted from 57 to 58 and killed 1.1 million people worldwide. 116,000 died in the U.S. When he was 57, the Vietnam era began and would last the rest of his life. It didn't end until 1975. There was 212,000 deaths in that. Along during this time, the Bay of Pigs debacle in 1961, along with the building of the Berlin Wall in that same year, and then the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis that meant his grandchildren would experience nuclear fallout drills in elementary school while growing up. Okay, so now we get to the years where, you know, just preceding and then beginning into the time that he would head into retirement. But preceding that, we think about civil rights being uh, such an issue today. In 1948, Truman issued executive orders, President Truman, exec, uh, executive orders to end segregation in the armed services. In 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court effectively ending racial segregation in public schools, however many schools remained totally segregated still. In August 28th of 1955, Emmett Till, a 14-year-old Chicagoan, is brutally murdered in Mississippi for allegedly flirting with a white woman. His murderers are acquitted. Unbelievable. December 1, 1955, Rosa Parks refuses to give up her seat to a white man on a Montgomery, Alabama bus. Her defiant stance prompts a year-long Montgomery bus boycott. January 1957, 60 black pastors and civil rights leaders, including... Martin Luther King Jr. meet in Atlanta, Georgia to coordinate nonviolent protests against racial discrimination and segregation. September 1957, nine black students known as the Little Rock Nine are blocked from integrating into Little Rock Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. Dwight D. Eisenhower, 
Eisenhower has to send federal troops. September 57, Eisenhower signs the Civil Rights Act of 1957 into law. February 1960, four African-American college students in Greensboro, North Carolina, refused to leave a Woolworths, if you can remember those stores, Woolworths, whites-only lunch counter. Think about that. Whites-only lunch counter without being served. The Greensboro sit-in, as it's called, sparks similar sit-ins throughout the city and other states. November 1960, six-year-old Ruby Bridges is escorted by four armed federal marshals as she becomes the first student to integrate William France Elementary School in New Orleans. In 1961, my grandfather retired. He got a gold watch from the MGM Studios who had taken him back after World War II ended. During the eight years of his retirement, our nation's social unrest was pretty heavy along with the Cold War, the Vietnam War escalating, the assassination of our president, and a civil rights problem far greater than today's. 1961, black and white activists known as Freedom Riders take bus trips through the American South to protest segregated bus terminals and attempt to use white-only restrooms and lunch counters. Freedom Rides are marked by horrific violence from white protesters. They drew international attention. October 1, 1962, 2,500 students at the University of Mississippi, students at the University of Mississippi went to excessive lengths to, to prevent a black student from, from enrolling at their school. June 11, 1963, Governor George C. Wallace, there's a classic in history, arrogant guy, stands in a doorway at the University of Alabama to block two black students from registering. President John F. Kennedy sends the National Guard to campus. 1963. Now, these are all the years my grandfather's retired. You know, life's supposed to be at peace. September 15, 1960, a bomb in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, kills four young girls prior to Sunday services. December 1964, the largest demonstration ever organized by the free speech movement takes place at UC Berkeley's campus in California. Students protesting the school's expulsion of those students involved and in student activism, involved in student activism in general, respond by occupying the hall in mass one day. 1,500 camped out in the building before being removed by police. Over 750 student activists were eventually arrested and the universe had its hands tied with no way to expel a significant tuition-paying portion of its student body without destroying the school's budget. Now, is that an epitaph or what? July 2, 1964, President Lyndon Baines Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Okay, that Title VII of that act started that U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, to help prevent workplace discrimination. March 1965, Bloody Sunday, in the Selma March in Montgomery. 600 civil rights marches walked to Selma, Alabama, to Montgomery, the state's capital, in protest of black voter suppression. Local police brutally attacked them. Martin Luther King is of that party. August 1965, President Johnson signs the Voting Rights Act into a, to prevent the use of literacy tests as a voting requirement. 
August 11, 1965, the Watts Rebellion or the Watts Riots, okay, was a large series of riots that broke out August 11, 65 in the predominantly black neighborhood of Watts in Los Angeles, California. The rebellion lasted for six days. 34 people died. Over 1,000 were injured. Over 4,000 were arrested. It involved 34,000 people in all and ended with 1,000 buildings being wiped out totaling 40 million in damages. Now, take 40 million and put that into today's money and think about how big that was. In October of 1967, UW-Madison students protest the maker of napalm. You know what napalm is? That's that, you know, that gas, uh, uh, you know, it, it's like jelly. It's like gas jelly that they dropped on the, uh, the, the jungles, you know, of Vietnam and it burned it down, burned people. It was awful stuff. Dow Chemical made it. They were visiting campus to, uh, you know, look for, you know, offering jobs to students. And uh, 300 students at Madison protest. It takes tear gas and nightsticks, okay, to get them dispersed. A lot of people ended up bloodied and bruised after that day. April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King is assassinated on the balcony of his hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. It takes a year for James Earl Ray to be convicted of murder. President Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act of 1968, also known as the Fair Housing Act, provided an equal housing opportunity regardless of race, religion, or national origin. Think of that, 1968 took that long. We are not living in unprecedented times. We are just living in our times today. And we can gain a lot from the generations that came before us. They held it all together preserved it through real unprecedented times so that this present generation would have it and would be able to do their best to make it better. So that's an outline of the world that my grandfather grew up in. In May of 1969, my grandfather passed away. He was 71. He liked real cream, butter on his pastries, and of course, something sweet with his coffee. He stood six foot three, broad at the shoulders and narrow at the hips. He was an old Viking in my mind, growing up. He had huge hands. People always remarked about the tremendous strength he had in his hands, and we always attribute it to his lumberjack days. He had the quietest spirit. Never an angry word came out of his mouth, but a man of conviction with a deep Swedish accent who never worked an ounce on Sundays. It was the Lord's Day, period. Before he died, I remember him telling me some of what I'm sharing with you. And when I asked him how he managed through it all, he laughed with a grin and he said, we just did what we had to do. I know without a doubt, there's absolutely no question that he's in heaven. When he was still immortal, you never heard a harsh word from him. But I wouldn't be surprised that from his present viewpoint that he was talking to the young lad that I call Sprout, that he might just reach down and say, suck it up, buttercup. Ain't it so? This is Getting Grit, signing off. I hope you will come visit us at www.gritquest.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hope to see you there soon.